Welcome to another episode of the Touring Rabbit Holes podcast. For those of you just joining us for the first time, my name is Gabriel Hesch. I'm an electrical engineer, also a former science teacher, and a podcast enthusiast. I am uh, the the host or the co-host of the Breaking Math podcast, which has been the number one ranked math podcast in the U.S., also in Great Britain, for quite a while now. Um, also, uh, I, I just love all things science uh, and mathematics and d- discussions about uh, humanity in general. And uh, my co-host here is Dr. Alex Alanese. Um, he has his PhD in particle physics. Want to tell us a little bit about your interests, Dr. Alanese? I am interested in artificial intelligence at the moment. Yeah. And particle physics as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a whole lot to talk about. Dr. Alex uh, Alanese and I met at work, and we'd always talk um, around the uh, water cooler about all things math and physics and black holes and climate change. And we had a lot of interesting conversations, so he eventually decided to make a podcast. So right. pretty exciting. Now, today's episode is a unique one. We talk about the science fiction slash historical fiction series that Dr. Alex Alanese wrote. I'm very excited. Uh, Previous episodes so far have been about... What is the essence of human consciousness? Can consciousness be modeled through artificial intelligence? We have talked about our favorite science books. The last episode was a little bit of a biography on Dr. Alex Alaniz, where you talk about your childhood and growing up uh, the uh, son of a fruit picker and how you eventually became a particle physicist um, in that entire journey. And today we get to do a deep dive into a fiction book that you wrote. And uh, we talk about all of your influences and things that inspired you. very, very excited about this particular one. Um, so this particular book starts off in Nazi Germany. It starts off actually in a Nazi, in a fictional Hitler youth camp. Uh, the book goes through World War II. It also goes through uh, the Cold War. and eventually catches up to the present day. Um, and I think the book eventually, by the time we get to the third book, it ends where? What time? In two senses, one, it ends at roughly 2050 and into the arbitrary future when civilizations have spilled over into type 2, possibly type 3 civilizations. Okay. And for those who are not familiar with them, can you explain what a type 0, type 1, and type 2 civilization are? So we humans, we're creeping up on type 1. We're still below type 1. And type 1 is a civilization that is able to control the energy from its star, completely control it. Mm-hmm. Recently, there was a Dyson Sphere uh, you know, that we possibly detected and we're, we're exploring uh, type 2 civilization would control the stars around the local neighborhood, and Type 3 would control the energy of the entire galaxy that it, that, that it arose from. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Um, so, so that's a part of this book. Uh, I've actually passed the part in the first book where we talk about the discovery of a, is it a, I'm sorry, Type 1 or is it a Type 2 in the first I book? I think it's a Type 2 civilization. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was exciting. Now, I don't want to give any spoilers here. We will get to that um, later on. This uh, book has some major, major themes. It's not only about um, science. What's kind of cool is uh, when you have a science fiction slash historical fiction book written by a physicist, one might assume that there's a greater emphasis put on the believability of these science aspects. That's only one element of these books. These uh, books, as I had said earlier, start off in the middle of the rise of Nazi Germany, and there's uh, some very interesting reasons why you may have chosen that, which we'll get to in a bit. The big themes in this book include the rise of nationalism, also uh, with that, polarizing politics, much like we see today. We see uh, arms races in this book. Um, We tell us a little bit more about the 
the themes as they apply to human and societal behaviors? So, so you mentioned something interesting, and, and, and I think you'll notice that the title War and Peace, Earth, Mars, and Universe are plays off War and Peace. I studied Tolstoy very carefully. His novel, his 1,500-page fine print tome, War and Peace, to try to figure out how to balance... Not, not, let, not let history overwhelm the characters and not let the characters overwhelm, be overwhelm, you know, uh, themselves be overwhelming, but uh, to find a good balance. Uh, some of the, the, the topics are how, as you said, nationalism rose in, in, in Italy with Mussolini under Hitler and Germany and Japan under uh, the emperor, and what parallels there are to today. And I, I conceived of this book back in 04, long before what we're experiencing right now in movements all across Europe and Latin America, like Brazil, with uh, Bolsonaro, I yes. believe is his name. This is fascinating, because this has been a major thing that I've seen, <laughs> sorry, a major theme that I've seen discussed in news outlets and uh, talking heads. A lot of people talk about uh, the rise of nationalism the world over. It's not just the United States, as many would consider President Trump uh, more of a nationalistic. I think he himself calls himself that, so that's a very fair, fair thing, but not just here, as you said, it's in Brazil, it's in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So this is a strange, um, I say strange time, but I guess all time is kind of a strange time, but uh, we certainly see it. May I ask then, if this was many years before the election of President Trump, what inspired you in 2004 to write this? Good question. It was a dream, and it was a dream uh, based maybe on a a mural of, of Churchill's phrase in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Okay. And I, I don't know if that inspired the dream, but it was a dream of educating today's young people about how history can repeat itself. And not, not always the same. I mean, we have an Internet now. They don't. But the themes of nationalism, the themes of being anti-foreign, the themes of isolating uh, specific uh, groups of people like the Muslim band or calling Hispanics rapists and murderers, uh, and whatever other politics are going on, uh, reactions in Germany to say to the Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. it was this notion that things like that can repeat again. And we have to watch out, especially now, because back in the 30s, they were pre-atomic weapons. Now we are thermonuclear weapons, and now we have Big Brother, and we have the super internet coming out there, uh, the mm-hmm. internet of things. Yeah. And so it's a different world with the same motifs but more danger. Interesting. Wow. And when I think back to 2004, that was, I believe, during, that was before the Obama administration. I yes. think he was elected in 2008. So that was part of uh, President George W. Bush's uh, second term, I believe. I Probably. Um, and or his I, first I, term. <laughs> first term. And I was, at the time, I was a, a postdoc in the stockpile stewardship program at Los Alamos National Laboratories, okay. making sure that our, our, our nuclear weapons, you know, our, my, a small part of it, uh, the implosion part, it worked. Yeah. Uh, so th- there's some major themes in this book, obviously, about um, nationalism. And as you said, it is pre-thermonuclear war. We are mm-hmm. now in a post-thermonuclear war. Not war, but... Not, well, I'm sorry. But, but world. We're, we're weaponized, right? <laughs> world, that's correct. Right. So not only do we have thermonuclear uh, um, weapons, but we also have, as you had said earlier, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And that's a major part of this book as well, right? Right. And there's the whole thing that's going on in China right now with Big Brother. They are watching you very carefully. For those who are less familiar, can you do a quick uh, Reader's Digest version of what you referred to as the Big Brother of China? 
So apparently you have to have on your smartphones, you have to have state-sponsored apps, okay. and you have to be socially responsible, If it, and you get brownie points or negative points, depending on how you behave. They are yeah. watching you very carefully, and they're even grabbing wow. everyone's DNA at this, at this point. Oh, my God. Wow. That's, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, to shift gears real quick, so obviously this is a science fiction book, and it is written by a physicist. Uh, I'd like to ask you, what are some of the science fiction elements in this book? And by that, I mean some of the, say, technologies that don't exist, but perhaps could. So the first book cuts out in 1962. So it's, it's a strong science. It's, it's strong science. It's strong history. It's, it's the second book, The War and Peace Mars, that once it gets past the 2020s, it begins to deal with topics of wealth gradients, and it begins to deal with how the extremely wealthy will have access to immortality technologies as they come online, mm-hmm. and how that will itself run away with the super wealth gradients. Uh, book three is, is now pushing into the plausible hard science fiction, if you will, of uh, uploading into machines of... of, of, of being a, a, a being who's access to the Internet of Things in your mind and, and being able to crawl around wherever we have sensors throughout the solar system and throughout our, our planet. Wow, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, in a lot of the episodes of this podcast, actually ones that I've done already, ones that we've done already on consciousness itself and what can science explain consciousness, I often, uh, and, and actually some of these I haven't done yet, but I have planned. I talk about the role of how our brains gather information about our, our world world around us from senses and what it might mean to extend those senses. Right. So uh, this might be a sort of a super intelligence uh, per se, if it, you know, if it ever happens. Um, interesting. So, and, and, and by strong science fiction, I mean that I didn't just upload via some Hollywood scheme, some, some like the matrix cheap show right version in. of plug in. Uh, I make it gradual. I make it so that the very rich can afford these nanobots that swim inside our, our body doing repair work, et cetera, but in the brain, they sit there monitoring our, our, the, the neurons that we're born with and doing, so watching the I.O., the input-output of the brain cells, and as, as we grow old and these brain cells die off, well, they plug in. Mm-hmm. So in a, in, a, in a matter of, say, 5 or 10 or 15 years, you slowly, continuously, without being consciously aware of it, transform yourself into a silicon-based intelligence, and guess what? You can... RF radio frequency your way into the internet and become much larger than, than you once were. Wow. So little minor spoilers there, but it's that's just the coolest thing to talk about. Wow. It's scary and awesome all at the same time. And, and maybe copies of you are running around. How do you synchronize? <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Crazy. Um, real quick, before we dive into the beginning of the first book, which you, you said earlier is a historical book, more so than a sci-fi book, I do want to take a moment and talk a little bit about uh, both the name you chose as well as the inspiration in general. As you said earlier, the book is named, uh, it's very similar to uh, Leo Tolstoy's book, War and Peace. Uh, of course, the first book is War and Peace Earth. The second book is War and Peace Mars. And the third is War and Peace U- Universe. Can you tell us why, you said it a bit earlier, but more on why you chose to name it um, after Tolstoy's work. What, uh, when, were you first, um, w- when were you first made uh, aware of his work? So during my, the time I was in the Air Force, which I mentioned last episode, not only did I work on you know, multiple masters in math and physics as you know, on my own time yeah. uh, because of my previous educational experiences, but I also got very interested in, in world and planetary dynamics and in national, you know, f- how countries work amongst each other. And, and, I, and I 
went to the best, in my opinion. Elio uh, Tolstoy and his book, War and Peace and War, but he's also a humanist, and it was that humanist element that I was very attracted to, as well as in, in, in his other works, like Anna Karenina. Um, so I was very interested in that. He was very influential to Gandhi, for instance. Gandhi would write to him about these movements and a peaceful resistance and, and equality, and Tolstoy had some social experiments, too, in Russia. Wow, I actually had no idea about that. Amazing. Okay, now I'm going to extend that last question a little bit. We talked about Tolstoy's influence. Let's say that I had a blender right now, and I wanted to put a bunch of books into that blender, and the end result would be your book, right? Is that right. a good analogy? Yes. Because we blend them all up, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. What are all the books, both in terms of uh, historical commentaries uh, and sci-fi books and philosophical books, what are s some of the books that would go into that blender? So the other great author of the time would be Victor Hugo, and he wrote Les Miserables, and he wrote Les Notre Dame de Paris, and he wrote uh, Toilers of the Sea. Mm -hmm. And each of these books had a purpose in his mind. One was to talk about the injustices of religion, the other one of governments, and the other one of just our dealing with, with the man versus, or humankind, I should say, versus nature. And, and, and he was a, a pantheist. He saw little gods and everything. So I, I find his writing very vivid. Mm -hmm. and, and the other one would be Arthur C. Clarke here in 2001. You actually brought it, didn't you? Yes, I did. I see. Ta-da! And in 2001, the inspiration from that is that a civilization from somewhere in our galaxy crawled out of the, the oceans as you know, slime like, like we think we did and evolved and eventually evolved into uh, spacefaring people, uploaded and now explore the universe as a very advanced type one, type two civilization. And, and so I wanted to take Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 and go, got that. That's very abstract. It, it makes sense. But now here we are. And if we're the ones that are going to take that next step, if we're going to upload it, if we're going to explore the stars, let me do as hard a science fiction and, and, and also an enticing story. You know, you got to have war and peace and war, right? Mm -hmm. of, of, of the future of where humanity might, might go and the kinds of conflicts we might have and why we might have these conflicts. Oh, wow. Incredible. So, all right. So in that blender, we have Leo Tolstoy. We have Victor Hugo. We have... 2001 Space Odyssey, written by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, anything else to top it off? Oh, probably lots of TV shows and other, <laughs> other, other inspirations. But yeah. Very good. Yeah, maybe a good historical book or so in there. Oh, quite a few books. I mean, but like I okay. said, I threw away a couple of thousand pounds of books uh, in Los Alamos when I was done with them. Cool. Very good. Very good. Okay. Now, I want to go ahead and dive a little bit more into this first book. I know from having read the first book myself, that is a historical fiction beginning in 1926, and essentially the book follows the path of three children. Uh, Lisa Raber, is that how you say her name? Yeah. Lisa okay. Raber. Also, uh, Anrik von Ossiger, that's a very German-sounding name. Heinrich, I think, in my Heinrich. head. I bet very you can pronounce it however you, you're pleased. You know, please. As you are the Heinrich. author, if I mispronounce it, you can call me out yes. on it, but you're, okay. <laughs> And Hans Fritz. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh, were any of those three based on actual people um, at the time? So, yes. Lisa, uh, Lisa uh, Raber is based on Lisa Meitner, the lady who figured out uh, that you can make atom bombs using the liquid drop model that, that I think uh, Gamow, the Russian physicist, figured out. And based on her laboratory work on, on transmutation of elements, especially with, with uranium. So it follows her. Mm -hmm and diverges from her. But I want to do a little bit of honor to her, to, to Lisa Meitner, okay. who did not share the Nobel Prize for her discovery. Instead, the two Germans that, that were there after World War II got the Nobel Prize oh, wow. because we wanted to have make peace with the Germans. Yes. But we forgot the Jewish woman. 
Ah, brilliant. Okay, okay. So yeah, you definitely have a lot of historical elements in there. Wow. Uh, Anrik von Osseger, can you tell us a little bit about him? So he is... His purpose is to become a rich guy to enable future technologies. <laughs> okay, that's his purpose. We brought over many rocket scientists and German rocket and jet technology over after the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. His purpose is to be the love interest of, of, of Lisa Reber. And uh, through World War II, she, she turns, she's, in the beginning of the book, you know, she doesn't realize, or her family doesn't realize that they, that they have Jewish lineage. Mm-hmm. Eventually that's discovered, so she has to leave Germany, and her path is to the Soviet Union eventually through okay. World War II. He ends up in our Alamogordo, Air Force, you know, in the Army Air Force bases uh, out in uh, California, Edwards Air Force Base today, Merrick back then. And he is the guy who's going to have an uh, idyllic American life, an American wife, an American family. He becomes the billionaire while she, Lisa Reber, uh, Lisa von Anzeger at this point, becomes the nuclear weapons designer, and I, and I get into the history of the, of the, to, to the limits that I can of, yes. the, of the Russian program right. and uh, the future Russian Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, Andrei Sakharov. Oh, wow. So it's very interesting I to, to and do that. Hans Fritz. Tell us a little bit about Hans Fritz, the okay, third. This is a big spoiler alert. Albert yeah. Einstein and his wife, uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking his wife's name, Merrick, uh, Maleva Merrick, uh, they had a child, a little girl out of wedlock, and she disappeared from the history books. Mm-hmm. She's just the right age to have had a child at 15, and I get into a while that happened. And so he is unbeknownst, the, the Hans is unbe, uh, unbeknownst, the grandson of Albert Einstein. So he is, he's Jewish. He doesn't know it. Ah. By adoption. Okay. And he becomes a virulent, uh, blood-lusting uh, Nazi. That's right. And he is a horrible character. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's one of the officers in the SS. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Yeah, that, he was an intense character. He's a character who is uh, written such that you have a hatred for him. That is unless... But I did what, what Tolstoy and other historians do. I don't, I as the author, don't, may, don't inject that. I let the actions, the, if you will, if I see it as a, as a movie, I, I let the actions speak for themselves. What he does, the brutality he commits against people... You know, he's the one who, who, who starts tracking down Jewish scientists and through mm-hmm. that eventually discovers that his rival, Lisa Raber, is uh, half Jew, a quarter yes. Jew for her, and her parents are half Jews. Interesting. So it starts off with these three, uh, they're friends, they start off as friends, and they're at a fictional Hitler Youth Academy for children who are gifted in the sciences. Um, and we, we already talked about uh, the, the three. Um, so basically... Um, Hans Fritz, uh, since we're on him, in this book, he establishes the theory of quantum teleportation far ahead of its time, and he became one of Hitler's most, most rabid SS killers. His quantum teleportation theory plays a key role in the war for control of the solar system in the third book, yes. uh, War and Peace Universe, um, which is, you know, we'll talk about that in a future episode. Um, you had also mentioned that this was first conceived in 2004 as, right. a historical, as a historical fiction. And the theme here is that history is, you know, um, we are doomed to repeat it for those who don't know history. I don't know if there's a more elegant I mean, way. there's criticisms to those statements, but, but that's, yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that statement, okay. to that idea. One of the things that I actually wish I had mentioned earlier on, real quick, is for those who are interested in reading this book, can you tell us where our listeners and viewers can uh, get a hold of a copy? So I think they're in the Google, uh, whatever you would call it, they're in the Google Play Store, they're on Amazon, mm-hmm. I have them for, you know, uh, 
for available freely as Kindles. I mean, they're yeah. they're lowly priced. I'm a first author. My goal is to get the ideas out. Okay. So if you want it for free, you can get a copy of Dr. Alex Alani's science fiction series right now. If you send us an email, uh, if you email us at, I've got a couple emails. You can email us at touringrabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. I plan to release this on my Breaking Math channel as well. So you can also email us at breakingmathpodcast at gmail.com and we will send you a free copy of the trilogy if you'd like to read it yourself. So before I forget, just, just a very important little aside is the kind of history that I get that might surprise American or readers and or readers around the world or, or all readers because time has passed, is that where did the idea of eugenics come from? Is it a, everyone thinks it's a Nazi Germany, uh, Nazi, you know, uh, idea. It actually came from the United States. Mm-hmm. We would have science fairs and we would talk about eugenics and we actually conducted sterilizations and this is what inspired Hitler. And this is what inspired the Germans towards that path. Wow. We so, started it, it and it, they furthered it. It's, it's an honest broker history of, of how the world came from that time to our time. Wow. Goodness. Oh, my. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Who, who we think started things isn't, isn't always who actually did right. start certain ideas. So um, let's talk a little bit more about um, the, the main characters here. Um, Tell us a bit about about Andrik von on, about I'm sorry how do you say his last name Onsager Onsager yes. Onsager okay so I actually in the book his mother Frida is from the highest levels of German society why right. did you uh, choose that um, well I needed a, a a giant castle academy that's fictional uh, for the Hitler Youth School to appear for gifted and talented children in science and math so that's that's her role. But it's also to introduce Hitler. I mean, she is high enough. She is a high enough German society lady that it, not through her, but through her uh, second husband, he pulls in Hitler. With the, he, her second husband falls in love with Mein Kampf, which is the book that Hitler wrote when he was in jail for a, a, what they call it the the beer hall putsch uh, rebellion. Mm-hmm. And he he sat in jail writing his Mein Kampf, my struggle, mm-hmm. and. In my fictional work, it's it's the it's that man, the father-in-law, the stepfather of Hans von Einsinger, who pulls in the Hitler character, and so you you begin to see Hitler as this kind of background character, and he's human, and he goes to soirees, and and just see this character, and like I said, neutral from my point of view as a writer, mm-hmm. but you're judging how this man is going to create the monstrosities that are that are going to happen. Yeah, he certainly is. Yeah, he so he makes appearances throughout the first book occasionally. Again, yes. which uh, knowing German. And, Knowing world history, that certainly draws the reader in uh, and to uh, want to find out more about it. Um, tell us a little bit about academy life at this uh, Castle Academy. Through Hans's Heinrichs, his mother's influence, it's more Greek academy at first, but eventually the German influence kicks in more, the militarism, the Nazism, the, you know, the idea of uh, what we were just talking about, uh, uh, genetic superiority, and... and that whole idea, and, and and it's honest from the point of view that the Germans were reacting. I, they had a Great Depression they were dealing with eventually, mm-hmm. 1929, 1930, They also had the the blight of having lost World War One in their mind that they were betrayed by the Jews. This is myths that that they created on their own. They had the idea that the Versailles Treaty was very oppressive to them, and so they wanted they wanted to come back to the world stage as an equal. Yes, and so, so that that background is is what's motivating a lot of the Germans, 
much like I think today, you know, Make America Great, which I, I think was b borrowed directly from Make Germany Great Again. Wow. Uh, they're identical phrases, except you just swap Germany and Interesting. And, and I had no idea. I'll have to Google search that. I, no, I really had no idea. Again. I had no idea about Adolf that. Adolf Hitler. Wow. And I'm surprised that more people haven't commented on that. because Well, they seem... have, but... Interesting. Wow. Okay. Um, reading this book, one thing that uh, actually uh, was hard to read, but I say this in a good in a good way as a writer, is that you know you discuss these historical events and the atrocities of World War II, and you really spare no detail. Uh, you you absolutely write in vivid detail about things like the murder of children and the gas chambers. Tell us a little bit about your editorial choices for including the gas chambers. And that, that one scene, and I think you know what I'm talking about when I say that one scene. The one scene is where Lise, Lisa von Onsager has escaped to Paris, but her family, their escape plans fell apart. And two of the sisters, and well, one of the sisters gets shot in the head because she's young and she's crying when the, when the stormtroopers break into the house. Yeah. And that's a way to quiet this child down, is to put a bullet in her brain as the mother's holding her. And so you have the brains and the blood and the gore. Later on, years away through a, an, a, an accident, they're prisoners. So, so the way I control the characters is Lisa von Onsinger escapes. Her husband then now, Heinrich von Onsinger, he is captured, so to speak, against his will in Nazi Germany because Lisa's family is, is, are the prisoners of, of Hans uh, Fritz. And so you have him controlling the family. There's a, 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 an accident that happens, and the family ends up in Auschwitz, the, the, the survivors. And I put the eldest daughter and the, the mother through the gas chamber. This is an idea that I dealt with atheism for the, for the daughter. and how, you know, There may not be any gods, but there's, there sure are monsters out there. Yeah. And I make it as vivid as a writer can, I suppose, what, to, 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 to those last moments while you're shoved in nude dark, you hear the motor turn on of the thing that's going to pump the gas in, and the mother's just trying to be motherly, and the daughter's going, well, I, you know, I, they're just counting down their last moments. And so it, it's, it's really hard to write. It was heart-wrenching to read. Uh, it absolutely was. Um, I'm going to tell you uh, one thing. So growing up, it, when I read these uh, horrific scenes in my English classes, I, I always had a bad taste in my mouth, and I wondered, why, why even do that? Why, why make me experience this? The fact that that's real, I think we have to experience it. We have to acknowledge that that's a part of history, and I'm, I'm not alone in that opinion by any means. Um, but uh, reading this book, again, the details are right there. This happened. This is not fiction, even though the book itself is considered historical fiction. And we're no longer in 04, 2004. We're in 2020. Correct. And although we haven't gone to the extremes of those times, I never thought in my lifetime that the Berlin Wall would fall or that we Americans would put children in cages and effectively disconnect them from their parents in such a way that we can't restore these families because we can't find the connections anymore. Yeah, that's, that's, as you mentioned earlier, history has a way. <sighs> now, we, we supposedly are the country that liberated the, you know, the world from Nazism, and we won the Cold War against Stalin, and, well, here we are on the edge of behaving just like those people. In some ways, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, actually, this brings us to a segment in the outline that I'd like to talk about where um, there are some parallels uh, and differences with German history. Um, now, actually, as we were writing this outline, did you mean this to say uh, 
the world now has some parallels, uh, has some similarities and differences? Or are you talking about how you're not book? only the world, but but the country that I that I'm watching transform as I go through it and yeah. through my life. Okay. Um, and before we dive into the section, there's a book that is a that is a major uh, source material for this discussion, uh, as well as I imagine for your science fiction book as well. Um, the book is called "The Death of Democracy: Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic." Tell us a little bit about this book and when you read it. Actually, this book is a 2000 book, I mean, 2020 book, okay. but it, it does a wonderful job. This book by uh, Benjamin Carter Hett, mm-hmm. The Death of Democracy, does a wonderful book by going back in time and looking at the differences, what, what was going on in Germany. He makes a conscious effort not to talk about today and the United yeah. States. So he talks about what were parallels back then to... to that I, as an, that I, in this episode, I, I, I isolated them out and said, here are the parallels and here are the differences between them. Mm-hmm. And what, one of the, I think we already talked a little bit about them, the Germans were undergoing a huge economic strife. Right. When, and that, in many ways, is what helped, propelled Hitler, Hitler to power. Mm-hmm. What was going on in the United States, other than candidates on the Republican side saying, our country's gone to hell, uh, and uh, you know, we, we we're way behind, we're the mocking, you know, we're, we're being made fun of by the world. No, they had a real honest-to-goodness depression. They really were starving. They really were unemployed. And in, in, in 2016, I don't think we were in that state, but, but yeah. many people thought we were rivaling Nazi Germany in the Great Depression. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, recently, I mean, I know we had the 2008 stock market crash, but perhaps the only modern parallel at that scale would perhaps be the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. And that was quite different, too. And we also see, you know, if we talk about world politics right now, uh, where things are with Russia right now, um, and uh, they're, uh, how would you describe what they're doing right now? They are the 12th largest economy of the planet, roughly, um, and they and California's probably around four or five. Okay. So that just gives you an idea. They can't even hold on against California. Yeah. But they, are par- they have parity with us in the nuclear weapons uh, considerations. So... That's what props them up. Yep. And they are a mafia state who loves to use the internet. Yeah. Cozy bear, I hear. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's also a, a, a discussion in other episodes of this podcast. Um, of course, today, inflation is low. It's nothing like, I wouldn't say no. It's, it's not anywhere similar. You don't to, need a wheelbarrow to buy yourself a loaf of bread. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, you just alluded to this a second ago, but another parallel is uh, fake news. This is an interesting one. I want to talk so about that's a, that's a pretty strong parallel to to back then to today, roughly one hundred years. I keep using the word roughly. I could say approximately. Mm-hmm. Um, they were under the belief, as were all countries, as World War One was being fought, that they were winning. Mm-hmm. And then the day comes, you know, we have an armistice. The, the war's over. We lost. Mm-hmm. So there was an immediate reaction to, so the newspaper has been lying to it. The newspapers have been lying to us all this time. Yep. So they had a intrinsic and good reason to have a distrust for, for, for the media that I don't see why we would have that other than, you know, this growth of monolithic viewpoints. Um, yeah, it's very, very strange this day and age. And as you said earlier, fake news is nothing new. But this, so, so, you know, in all my time growing up... Um, Oh, gosh. I was uh, in middle school when Bill Clinton was in office. That gives you my age. Mm-hmm. There you go. 
uh, in all of my time, I, I never remember fake news being discussed as often as I do now and seeing its rise on Facebook where you have, you know, fake groups of doctors who are promoting um, demon medications. Sperm, yeah. And medications that are that do not pass um, peer review and randomized clinical trials. Yet it's, they're promoting it like it's this is crazy. It's it's absurd. I've once heard that. um I'm sorry, I'll, let me rephrase that comment. I saw a, uh, a meme on Facebook uh, a while back where someone was talking about when I was very, very young, my mother would say, you be very careful on the internet. You never know who you can trust. Uh, you know, you don't, don't talk to strangers and don't believe whatever you read. And then now it's, with all due respect, <laughs> baby boomers who are falling for fake news at alarming rates from it was, it was this joke uh, on the meme. It was like patrioteagle.org or something where, where, where they'll tell you anything that they want. Um, so I, I work in the military industrial complex. I, except for COVID, I traveled quite a bit and I interacted with either retired military or active duty military or defense contractors who probably also had a military background. And the kinds of things that surprise me about the effectiveness of fake news and, and the I don't know what it is, because these are otherwise patriotic, intelligent people. They came to me as soon after, say, uh, President Trump won the election. Mm -hmm. They would come to me and say, now the stock market can go start going up. Because, of course, it wasn't going up under Obama. And it, it, all it takes is click, click, click. Here, here's, you want CNBC, you want Wall Street Journal. You, you know, I'll click, 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 click. Here's, here's the graphs. Yeah. What are you talking about? The stock market went down under Obama. Yeah. It went down under the previous Bush. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and went linearly up. Um, uh, things like, we're talking about right now, the bounty on American troops by, by Putin. Any president that, from my history would have addressed that. As a, well, this is not tolerable, Russia. There will be consequences of putting bounties on our troops. I've not heard the president say anything whatsoever once to discuss this. And yet, if I go to work today and I, and I, and I have my colleagues, those aren't the issues on their mind. It's not the troops that they support supposedly by, by their job. Yeah. It is, you know, Antifa. It is this movie star. It is Ocasio-Cortez. It is, that's what's in their world. And I go, and so what I do is I put on Fox News and, and New York Times and Washington Post, Intelligence, Seattle Intelligencer, Austin American Statement, Chicago Tribune. I can run our breath multiple times. And I put them all side by side. And so in Fox, you'll see tiny little headlines way, way down there. Russians put bounty on our troops. Uh, movie star issues way up here. Uh, AOC, sorry, AOC, you know, and her politics. She's going to ruin the military over there. She's a freshman congresswoman, by the way. I yeah. don't think she has that kind of power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that is the power of fake news. And yeah. that is the power of monolithic sources like Fox News. Absolutely. I'm I yeah, a lot of my family watches Fox News and I'm gonna go ahead and get a little personal real quick. That's one of the inspirations for me making a podcast is I want to see credible, local, deep dive news from individuals who are not uh, as you said earlier, monolithic. That's not democratic. That's also not a representative sample of who we are as a country. When you look at one source, which is Fox News, that's my beef. I'd like to see more, um, uh, more diversity, more peer review. Um, I, I think it's a. Uh, I'm not. It's not a good thing when that is the voice of so many Americans is from a single monolithic source. 
if, if these you know people who support the warfighter community, it's their job to understand the world. It is a responsibility based on what they do for a living and who pays mm-hmm. their checks. And so I, I consider it civic irresponsibility to the point of that phrase from Russian intelligence that the the, peop, the, the monolithic peop, the monolithic citizens of our country are de facto useful idiots to the the cause of the of the uh, mafia state that Russia is at the at the moment. Correct. And I think that I'm happy with one thing. Um, I have been able to have some very uh, well-mannered discourses with people of varying persuasions, including people who voted differently than I voted. And it's been kind of cool. I've seen it happen on a podcast format where you can deep dive an issue. You know, like you go into an issue and you talk about assumptions and definitions and you examine different news sources. That doesn't happen typically, let's say, on the internet in comment sections where people are vitriolic toward each other. But one thing that I find some encouragement with is I'd like to, you know, have an actual uh, historical political analysis show in a podcast format um, you know, and, and with, with, with people who have a good relationship with, with each other and an assumption that we're just trying to get to the bottom of these issues. You know what I mean? So, so my approach yeah. is the honor code of the military academies. I will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those among us who do. Is that a, and that is considered to be a minimum standard of behavior when you go through the military academies and you commission to become an officer. I did not go through academy. I went through officer training school. It was the same motto. It was the same minimum standard of behavior. Mm-hmm. And I ask, is this consistent with what you see? Is this consistent uh, with, 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 with the political leadership that we have in Washington right now, especially at the White House, especially among Senate Republicans? Is this consistent? Is this, I will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those among us who do? Is weighing Russian, intelli- Russian Putin's word versus our intelligence community, is that consistent and, and with defending the Constitution? And, and I'm trying to bring them back to their roots, you know, and so I try to be polite that way. I'm not, I'm not going to do tit for tat on AOC or, or Hillary Clinton having a pizza gate and doing what sex crimes in a, in a basement of some pizza store. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get into the big picture. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I know we went on a little bit of a tangent there, sure. um, which is fine. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, parallels sure. about things that are similar and different with Nazi Germany and with the world that we have right now. One thing I'll mention is that unlike Germany at this time, America has never lost a world war. Yet there is a growing market for and a hunger for this fake news and a continuous attack against the free press throughout the world. Um, now, one of the things that I want to talk about is that um, unlike Germany at this time, uh, America has never lost a world war. Yet, there is a growing market and a growing hunger for fake news. Uh, just look at the numbers for uh, anything like InfoWars or any of these other news sources that are not credible at all. And also notice the continuous attack on the free press throughout the world. In fact, in this last uh, last year, last couple of years, a, a major uh, attack on the free press happened with um, Saudi Arabia. Right. I it was the um, reporter's Khashoggi. Correct. Jamal Khashoggi. Jamal Khashoggi, and he was, I believe, part-time with the Times or with the Post. I can't remember which paper it is. Yes. And uh, apparently one of the, the, the leading, I forget his initials, uh, the leading Arab sheik in Saudi Arabia had him assassinated. The CIA reported this way. This is in CIA official documentation released to the mass media, reported by all of our journals, and the president would just kind of ignore that. 
Correct. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I, I, I would think that maybe in, he's, in his own language, he, would, he wouldn't mind something like that happening to our press. Yeah. In fact, I know it was on 13th of December of, um, I'm sorry, was it 2019 or 2018? You got me on that. Okay. I'll have to look it up. But in recent years, uh, in opposition to the White House's position, the United States Senate unanimously passed a resolution that held Salman, um, I'm sorry, uh, held Bin Salman um, mm-hmm. accountable for it. Oh, and you know what? And, um, and on the same day, the Senate voted 56 to 41 to pass le- legislation to end U.S. military aid for the Saudi Arabian-led intervention to Yemen, a vote uh, at- attributable to the senator's desire to punish Saudi Arabia for the Khashoggi murder and for the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, including famine and human rights violations. And of course, what ended up so happening, the, go ahead. Know, our president regularly talks about how they're such great friends of ours. And uh, So that's what gets me about the monolithic source. Mm-hmm. The, the United States Senate, which is Republican, has a Republican majority right now, acted this way. It's on their records. It's not fake news. And yet, and I talked to my, you know, people in the military industrial complex, they're like surprised. Like, what are you talking about? The big story is AOC. Did you hear what she texted today? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's... <laughs> So they're That's living in a, in, a, in a lack of reality. It does surprise me as well because you and I come, you know, from the same workplace, and I see, you know, uh, engineers who. Uh, what really surprised me is educated engineers who, again, they're very, very good at engineering, but their only source of news is one source. And as you said earlier, they're more upset uh, about what comes from that one source. You know, again, t- talking about AOC, than they are about other world events. That's. That's ma- that I, that's un- unfathomable. I don't understand it myself, actually. So um, now let's talk about Germany and their propaganda. Mm-hmm. Sure. You had said earlier that um, uh, there was a lot of propaganda, uh, a lot of propaganda in Germany about how they're winning, and right. uh, when they lost, uh, they uh, there was a narrative that they were betrayed by Jews as well as Germany's liberal Democrats. Mm-hmm. They had, a, I guess, what you called, or what, what is called, a stabbed-in-the-back myth exploited by demagogues, including Adolf Hitler. Tell us a little bit more about that stabbed-in-the-back myth. It was the way the military adopted uh, a way to, to uh, an, an approach to say we were winning the war, but we, we, you know, if it wasn't for these dirty politicians, these Jews, we would have won the war. And it was a narrative that caught on with, with the German population. Not mm-hmm. all. I mean, the Germany is a big country and has big regions, but it certainly caught on. And uh, with Hindenburg and with Hitler uh, and, 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 other, and other conservative forces, they were, they were so speciated versus us. And we have, we have Democrats and Republicans and maybe some division here and there be, between some type of Democrats and, and some types of Republicans like the, the Tea Leaf Party. Over there, they had 20, 30 different interests going, including the communists and versions of the communists and religious groups, etc. Yeah. Interesting. Um, now, uh, one other, other thing to talk about in terms of a parallel is uh, immigration. Um, right. We mentioned earlier that in, in Germany, um, they had their scapegoats that included the Jews and the liberal Democrats. And here there is uh, a lot of talk about uh, immigrants who are robbing the country, right? Correct. I mean, after World War II, the Russians and other European powers, they had what they call pogroms, and they would get rid of the Jews and displace them. A lot of them end up, ended up in Germany, and that ended up with, with you know, f- f- fomenting uh, 
nationalism and, and, and anti-race, you know, anti-Jewish sentiments. We see a little bit of that happening in Germany yet again with the Syrian refugees that Angela Merkel lit in. Uh, we see that in in our politics with you know the, the what were they calling them uh, the the tra- train loads of, of of Latin Americans that were coming to invade us and uh-huh. rape our women etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and we see that in different areas. I think France is struggling with the Muslim issue. Italy might be mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Now, what is interesting is, so I've got a friend of mine from Germany. In mm-hmm. fact, she's been on the show before, Shani. Mm-hmm. Uh, she experienced uh, immigration in Germany where they had policies that were specifically meant to help uh, immigrants from uh, Syria. Right. And she talks about the first wave of immigrants and then the following second wave of immigrants. And what I found fascinating was she talks about the first wave of immigrants where you had mothers and children who were arriving and people would bend over backward to help them and to integrate them. And it was a wonderful and beautiful thing. And then she talks about a sudden shift in the immigration, where in this second wave of immigration, you didn't have mothers and children, but you had a lot of apparently single men. Mm -hmm. And they would talk about how... um, their wives and kids are back home and they came to get to get established before bringing them. Right. Something's a little weird about that story, isn't it? Um, you know, if, if, you know, if, 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 if they make a claim that their wives and children are, are back in Syria, you know, it seems like the wife and children should come first. Having said that, there were incidences in Germany where you had a mass increase of rape um, in, mm-hmm. in a given time, and it was after the second wave. I only bring this up because I know that immigration is a complex issue, and they are, I, I think it's fantastic that Germany, you know, maybe this was out of guilt in part, but they went out of their way to accommodate a humanitarian crisis, and it wasn't perfect but but they had you know national policies to accommodate these people who were in need and it mm-hmm. was clearly black and white again i know it wasn't perfect and i know that there were challenges and right. you know mm-hmm. including bringing in a bunch of young men who let's just be honest uh, it's not confirmed whether they were married at all and uh, that you know that that's where you had an increase in things like rape um you know, I like to talk about the, the needs of immigration uh, as a whole and the humanity of great nations where they can take care of, of, uh, of the poorest of the poor and the, in the uh, neediest people. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it's still, it's an interesting question. So, so getting, moving towards other parallels is back in the 20s, globalization was a big problem for the Germans and a big problem for lots of people, especially for German farmers. Mm-hmm. Globalized uh, agriculture was making it life very tough for German farmers, and so there was this that was that would cause a lot of recoil back towards nationalism. You know, and we we have to be self-sustaining. We have to be Germans amongst ourselves. So so that that's a, that's an interesting parallel. It's a huge issue. I've heard I've heard uh, a lot of uh, um, criticism of globalization. In fact, even among conspiracy theories, anything at all can be. Uh, attributed to a move toward the globalists, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and then just to make that point clear, you said that globalization can be very, can make things extremely challenging for a lot of people like smaller farmers. Mm -hmm. Is this a case uh, where they just get overtaken by giant corporations and they can't make a a decent living? It's similar to the struggles that say Amazon is posing to local small mom and pop shops, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They can't compete against the global supply chains. So it's, it's a very tough problem to deal with. I mean, there's benefits and there's disadvantages to globalization. So it is a complicated thing that requires, uh, I think, uh, lots of deliberation and, and action. You know, 
as opposed to the simplistic approaches. Yeah. So again, given it, everything else happening in Germany and the challenges for German jobs, it makes sense then that Germany at the time would be very anti-globalization and anti-trade. We are definitely a- more anti-trade than previous uh, presidents. Um, anti-free trade and uh, trade forces with the USA and the UK and the UK back then. So, and of course, today the USA has engaged in more trade wars than I think in any time since I've been alive, actually, that I'm aware of. Probably, yes, yeah. So, and that resonates with a major part of the USA. Um, we're talking about, you know, free or fair trade and mm. tariffs. In fact, I know that recently, just this week, mm. we have new tariffs placed on our trade with Canada, right. and they are matching our tariffs. So, more trade wars. So other parallels as we go through these lists, this, which is we're, we're close to the end of this list, is the culture wars. Mm-hmm. There was the big cities in Germany, and there were the rural farmers. And the big cities, uh, especially Berlin, were considered to be libertine, amoral. When women were equal, women smoked, homosexuality was accepted. This was seen as anathema to, to, to the uh, ways of life of, of German farmers and, and rural folk. And mm-hmm. so there was that gradient of what we call blue state, red state today in, our, in the United States that was going on in Germany. Um, we see that exactly here as well. Yeah. Definitely yeah. culture wars. That's a major thing as well. Obviously, I think, you know, there's more progress like with uh, the legalization of gay marriage, but just seeing in the news how there's a lot of pushback to that. Right. And, and then uh, so another big parallel was that after World War I ended, they adopted many elements of the British and the American Constitution. Mm-hmm. They made a mistake. They had a provision, much like the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic, that is, of having this condition that if the society needs correction, you know, it's going to pot, there's too much anarchy, we can elect a dictator, a temporary dictator, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whose name was Adolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now sure. we've had elements like that. Like I even think about, um, gosh, the Civil War with the suspension of the Constitution, the suspension of the right of habeas corpus under Lincoln. So that's not something that's unique to Germany. We've certainly done that as well. And then the Russians were inside of Germany through the Communist Party. The mm-hmm. Soviet Union was new, and there was a lot of resources from, from, from Russia mm-hmm. into the communist movement in Germany including disinformation and rabble-rousing, etc. Very much like a, a little dictator that I know named Putin who's trying to do the same thing with us. And again, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's current news right now yes. that the Russians are you know, influencing our elections mm-hmm. to the best. Of, uh, and accordingly, you know, no surprise, the Chinese and other countries. Yes, yeah. I know that many Germanians, or sorry, many Germans, including those pulled into Hitler's Nazis, were for um, the term is autocracy, which is economic independence and self-sufficiency from the world. This meant recapturing territories lost to Poland, France, and Italy. But this itself would not suffice. Autarky, um, is that how you say the word? I would say autarky, yes. Autarky would require the capture of Russia's resources. Hence, the, Germany be, the, the German military began its buildup and planning for, for World War II not long after the end of World War I. Because one disastrous world war is not enough, and the lessons of Napoleon were forgotten, Russian winters kill armies. Right. So I think they began planning for World War II as of 1919, which mm-hmm. is like a year later after the end of World War I. Yeah. yeah. So that is surprising. So how about some differences now? Uh, some differences that I have highlighted here would be... So another parallel and some differences that went into that time was the idea that politicians 
shouldn't just tell little white lies. Mm-hmm. If you're going to tell a lie, go for it. Do the biggest lies you can. Repeat them often. Mm-hmm. And, and that is definitely, uh, I see that happening in today's world. I see you know, leadership from, say, uh, Brazil and the United States talking about, you know, what is this COVID? It's going to go away. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, we're just around the corner. Yep. Week after week, month after month, uh, some of the differences were, and the scary difference was, mm-hmm. The mass media of the 1920s and 30s is nowhere near as sophisticated and as pervasive as the mass media of today. That is a big difference. Yeah, and this has been interesting. I'm very curious what, you know, history will look back on us in this day and age because of the prevalence of fake news. Uh, I've also heard the question brought up of in this day and age where there's so much information at our fingertips on our cell phones, on Twitter, on Facebook, everywhere. We would have thought that the world would have been much, much, much more educated, but it's miseducated. We didn't plan on that. We didn't plan on that, you know. Um, it's uh, as you, as you've written in this outline. We we have a hackable cloud-based communication system. Back then, they didn't. The internet and the president promoted a doctor promoting hydrochloroquine while warning the dangers of having sex with demons. And uh, I now, in fairness, a lot of my friends who do believe that hydrochloroquine is being suppressed as a treatment or possibly a cure for COVID-19, a lot of them don't believe in the demon sex aspect. But even so, that doctor was promoted, and it certainly hasn't um, passed peer review with a statistically relevant sample size. Right. No, in fact... They have done studies, and what the studies have come back is that it, it actually is does more harm to those who have advanced conditions, uh, cases of, of COVID. It, it, there's less people that survive the disease on this protocol versus those who are not put on hydrochloroquine. Mm-hmm. Hydroxychloroquine, I believe, is the correct molecule. And so th- that brings us to hope. Mm-hmm. And to uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go through this quickly. The last book here is The Return of Great Power, Rivalry by Matthew Krennic, and I believe that's also a very recent book. Okay. And if I can start, it looks at democracies going back to Athens, which is a direct democracy, mm-hmm. versus Sparta. Mm-hmm. And then it moves on to, I believe, Venice and, and its rivals. Oh, no, sorry, Rome, then, which was a democracy before it became an, a dictatorship, and then Venice, and then the Dutch, and then the British, and then us, and our rivals during all this time. Mm-hmm. And when some of the highlights, and I think we should do this in a, in a, in a full episode mm-hmm. later, is democracies engender trust, mm-hmm. and they engender entrepreneurship. They engender, you know, this energy to, to move forward. Whereas, if you imagine yourself in, the, in, a, in, a, in a, say, the times of Stalin and Gulag, yes, you know, you're not going to stand out like a sore thumb because you don't want to end up in, in, in Gulag. Yes, what you so. It, no one has the courage to, to be inventive. Everyone's secretive. Everyone's keeping them to themselves. The, the flow of ideas collapses. And, and, and whereas in democracies with free presses and we engender trust in our financial systems, you know, you have all this kind of progress. And so I'm not too worried about the Chinese overlords and, and their Orwellian approach or the, or the Russians. I'm not too worried about it if we democracies can keep our democracies, if we can keep trust in our institutions, trust in the free media. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, what, what that book goes into, quite a bit of deep history of Venice versus uh, its rivals and Rome versus its rivals, et cetera. Interesting. Yeah, here in the, in, the, in the outline, you talk about how in book two and three of the trilogy, it's a post-Trump world and leads to a second American war. Oh, did I jump ahead? No, 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 please do. Yeah, okay. there's an, and, and I do... 
I play the game. I play the game. Okay, let's do it. Let's let's yeah. let's see. Let's have the well, let's fight out the civil war again, okay. and let's let's devolve into red states and blue states and keep them equally nuclear armed. And yeah. I go through that. I go. What happens to women's rights? What happens to to life in a red state in, under a red you know country? Yeah, interesting. So, and as you said, so this is where you uh, leave behind a stalemate with the blue states, as both the Confederacy and the Union retain nuclear weapons arsenals. I, I don't there think is a that. stalemate in terms of nuclear. They're they're equally armed to the teeth. Yes. But one of them collapses, their vocabulary collapses, they can't handle three syllable words, evolution becomes volution, women's rights goes away. Um, There are people try to escape to Mexico because some of the red states border Mexico, like like, uh, Arizona and Texas, and they just want their freedom that they remember America used to be about, but but their own country kills them as they try to cross over into Mexico for freedom. Not that Mexico is any better in my my fiction, but it has freedom. Yes. And the blue states continue to, to develop science and technology, and they are thinking, we have to protect humanity. Let's mm-hmm. get a Mars colony going. And so that's where some of the science fiction comes in, going into building a, a lunar and Mars colonies to, to, to have a backup plan for our species. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Um, wow. Um, I can't wait. Now, I, have, I haven't read that far yet myself, but I certainly uh, look, uh, look forward to it. So... It, those books two and three go into quite a bit of differences. For instance, uh, and, and I say uh, democ- uh, dictatorships tend to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. All I can think under Napoleon, they made one big one. They invaded Russia. Yes. Hitler, dictator Hitler, he made a big one. He invaded Russia. Yes. Uh, I think the Chinese oppression of, of civil liberties and the free press is, is going to do exactly to China what Stalin did to Russia is make this an, a state that's dead and gray and not full of invention. Uh, and I, I mean, they can't, China cannot match landing Chinese on the moon yet. Yep. They can't match Elon Musk. One of our, he, I think he's an immigrant, right, from yeah. uh, South Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that free enterprise here and laissez-faire and some laws and regulations to keep things a little bit balanced versus that, that oppression in China. Uh, yeah, I want to mention something real quick that I find interesting. Um, now, in the book, obviously, you talk about red states and blue states, and it's clear here that you talk about red states very unfavorably, and mm-hmm. you talk about blue states as progressive or rather technologically more advanced and even uh, g- going off to Mars, and you clearly talk about red states losing their vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's probably no secret where you lie on the political spectrum. Um, I think um, I, but then I mentioned, I hear you talk about freedom and the value of freedom, which when I talk to a lot of my, uh, let's say, conservative friends, they always talk about valuing freedom. Mm-hmm. So I find that that kind of cool because their their biggest uh, rather if you watch Fox News, uh, often they talk about the the fear of communism or the fear of big government, uh, whereas uh, the the freedom from big government is something you very much value. And you talk about in this book, like that's that's how innovation happens. And even in your in your commentary on China, you have to control wealth gradients. Mm-hmm. And we go back to the robber barons a uh, hundred years ago, a little yeah. bit more than that. And the wealth gradients get so extreme, and the working conditions get so extreme for the poor that something has to stop. Unions and legal action to protect children and protect labor, 
there has to be a balance. Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm very laissez-faire in certain in a certain sense, mm-hmm. but I'm also very pro-government. Uh, in the United States, I don't worry about taking a drink of water. In Mexico, they say watch it. Yep. In other countries, yep. the food might kill you. The yes. airplanes that they fly might kill you. So there has to be a balance between lawyers and laws and and and, and, and legislature yep. legisl- legislatures and in controlling uh, unabated greed. So mm-hmm. no, I I, I am for a. a Finding that right balance, which is probably always a continuous juggle. Yep. Absolutely. Interesting way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Now, you had talked about wealth gradients. I know that recently 10,000 millionaires moved to the United States, uh, what was it, 2018? And China actually lost 15,000 high net individuals, uh, while Russia lost 7,500 high net individuals also in 2018. In 2020, the U.S. share of the gross domestic product is roughly 24%, while the Chinese share is about 15%, and Russia comes in at just below 2%. China has one ally, that is North Korea. Russia... Well, they invade. They invade their na- their neighbors. So unless you count President Trump and his policies, mm-hmm. I, they, they don't have a whole lot of allies. So that's a really good point for those who who, you know, are so nervous about China and taking over the world, and they're going to have the largest economy. Excuse me, they're not going to have the largest economy when you combine Europe. And you combine the United States and Canada and Latin America and the democracies of Asia. When you combine the democracies of the planet, mm-hmm. we have about three quarters of the economy and GDP of the planet. I don't see them muscling into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to move into Africa. It's true, and Africa will be a rising power eventually. Mm-hmm. But I don't see them uh, equaling the parity of, of, of the democracies right now anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not too worried, and especially Russia is a mafia state, which you know, maybe hopefully the young people one day can can, can, can erect a, a true democracy. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you, you talk about in these uh, show notes, you say essentially, loosely speaking, democracies build free trade agreements while autocracies build walls. The fallen Berlin Wall was given away to the Great Firewall of China. Right, Interesting. right. Yeah. Um, you'll say that in the militaries of autocracies, it is better to wait for orders from above uh, and have someone to blame than to take risk and take initiative. So one of the beauties about the American military doctrine that's probably been around since at least World War II, if not earlier, mm-hmm. is the commander gives you the intent. Yes. Hey, troops, this is my intent. Objective A. Yes. The, then the authority of that commander is delegated to the troops. You figure it out. Use, you know, and I'll use biological uh, ideas of you figure out the, the evolutionary process of dealing with the objective. Uh, so the autonomy goes back down mm-hmm. to the troops and they figure out creatively and in the battle space what to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you can't do that from, you know, in World War II, you know, the idea from, from Daddy um, Stalin was you give up an inch, we'll shoot you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Interesting. Uh, now, you also talk about how um, there's a dichotomy about autocratic uh, industries versus workers in democratic industries, and it's kind of similar, where Very the similar. latter, mm-hmm. uh, the freedom uh, seeding competition and innovation, uh, whereas in the former, again, it's pretty stagnant because nobody wants to take the risk and be blamed. So China's experimenting with a little bit of free economy in little pockets, mm-hmm. and they, I mean, they clearly have some successes. But at a certain point, they're also getting more and more Orwellian with the DNA mapping and the social media watching. Now, now this is a debate that doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not just new. It goes yeah. back to Niccolo Machiavelli, who wrote uh, The Prince, of course, and he wrote Discourses on Livy. And Livy was a Roman historian 
who wrote about democracies versus you know autocracies. Yeah. So and, and th- the theme going back from ancient Rome to today is roughly the same that democracies are good at you know we we we, we fret at the, the democratic process and how bogged down we get between you know the sides fighting. Mm-hmm. But when when you have sides fighting, you end up making joint decisions which have some wisdom to them and yeah. not and some of the idiocracy removed from them mm-hmm. as opposed to like let's let's go and invade Russia you know Adolf Hitler mm-hmm. you know uh or, or or things like that yeah all right so uh there's a whole lot more to talk about both with uh book 1 and book 2 and book 3 but we will save that for a future episode and we'll also do some more science fiction-y stuff that's fun. Oh, totally, yeah. Immortality, we yes. uploading. Join us next time, and we'll not only talk about more geopolitics, but, uh, uh, yeah, the, the science of uploading one's consciousness, if that can be done. Uh, also, again, if you want a free copy of the book, just send Alex an email, uh, touringrabbitholespodcast at gmail.com, and we'll make sure to get you your You don't free. even have to send me an email. They're available just, uh, I think, on our on our uh, site, uh, Stem to Me, or they're available. Uh, yeah. We'll make sure that you have Check the, our dry... Check the the, the, the show notes. Yeah. Yes. And thank you for joining us. Thank you.